All right, this morning I'm going to have you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you are just joining us this morning or to remind the rest of you, we're in a series right now just discussing uh, the local church or the church itself and what is the church. We like to do these series on the church every so often just to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. We are the church as direct reference to your primary identity in this world is as a member of the body of Christ and that intimate connection to Him. As a matter of fact, that's one reason our membership in the body of Christ and being a member of His body is one of the reasons we can sing with such confidence that Jesus will hold us fast because we are united to Him. We're in union with Christ in an unseparable union. It cannot be separated from the body of Christ, if you are truly a member of it. And what we've learned to this point is that Jesus promised to build His church, His ecclesia. It was a future promise at that time, and the word ecclesia means an assembly of people called out and gathered for a purpose was not something that was in existence when he was speaking in Matthew chapter 16, but something he was in the future going to build. And we're learning that we are the people of the church, and that means we are a privileged people. So we're walking through issues of that, using primarily as a springboard Acts chapter 2, and uh, though this morning we won't do much in Acts 2, we'll come back to that next week. As we begin, let's, uh, let's pray as we usually do. Let's ask God's blessing upon His Word preached. Father, now we need You more than we realize to guide us into Your truth by Your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. I ask that You would help me now and gift me, even in these moments, to be clear, concise, and to read the Scripture and exhort it and to teach and to do so with the love for you and the love for your people which is required of me so that they can be built up and edified in the knowledge of who we are as the body of Jesus Christ. So please help us and everyone here, uh, Father, just work in each heart by your Spirit as you see fit because you know the hearts and minds of all. And uh, I just pray that you would supply those needs. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. One thing that's important to understand about the church is its two aspects. When we talk about the church, we're talking about one church because there is only one church. There is only one ecclesia of God. There, are only, uh, there is only one body of Christ. And yet, we know that there are local geographical expressions of that one body of Christ. You're in one this morning. It's like a coin with two sides. On the one side, you have the universal church. You flip it over to the other side, you have the local churches. Each member of the local churches is a member of the church universal and 
vice versa in that. But you are, there is one church, there's one body of Christ throughout the world, doesn't matter where you are, all believers in Christ, indwelt by His Spirit, are members of that universal body of Christ. And then there are local expressions of that uh, universal church throughout the New Testament. All of your letters in the New Testament, or at least most of them, were written to churches or to people leading churches like Timothy and Titus. And Paul writes to them as though they're the body of Christ. In some cases, you could apply what he's saying to the universal body of Christ. In other cases, obviously, it's how they live out that universal membership in that local expression among their one another. Like we, we like to say here, when you commit to membership here, you're committing to these people at Calvary Bible Church in Grand Junction to be our one another's, to live out your one another membership with the people here. That's what you're committing to. But it doesn't any less make you a member of the body of Christ with somebody right now worshiping in China, okay? Or any other part of the world. You're part of the member of the universal church. The word universal used to be Catholic. They would use the expression the Catholic church. By that, they meant the universal church. So if you ever hear that expression, like in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in one Catholic church, and don't let it freak you out and say, I'm not a Catholic. It's lowercase c, meaning universal. Church universal is what it means. We are members of the universal church, and we should be members of the local church, living out that universal membership in a local congregation because it's impossible, ultimately, to fully fulfill the New Testament commands to these local churches that are given about loving one another and serving one another and using your spiritual gifts in the body of Christ and not be attached to a local assembly. It'd be very challenging to do that. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament era, it would be probably unheard of to go into Ephesus or Corinth or Colossae, any number of these cities that are mentioned in the New Testament, find Christian and say, you know, where do you assemble? You know, oh, I don't go to church. I'm a Christian, but I don't go to a church. Be unheard of. Because they're members of the body of Christ and immediately as we see right from Acts chapter 2, they become directly committed to the local church to wherever they are. It is not the norm. It is not even talked about. It is not mentioned. There's no instruction even given for a person that wants to say they're a member of the body of Christ universal, but not part of a local assembly. And understand, when I'm saying membership, we do practice a membership here, but I'm saying the commitment to the body that you have a local church that you attend and serve in and are a part of. It's unheard of, really in history, until the United States and rugged individualism and hyper-grace and so many other problems that have been created in the wrong ways of thinking in the American church as though being a part of a local geographic expression 
and living out your membership in the body of Christ as part of that local geographic expression of the universal body of Christ, that that's an option. I might mention the same with baptism, but we'll get to that in two weeks. Only in our country, only in our culture, did all of a sudden baptism become a decision that you weigh the pros and cons and decide to do. And I mean, study church history, study world current church now everywhere else. We're the only place that has that kind of faulty, silly thinking. That somehow you can come to faith in Christ and then ignore the first command in the first Christian sermon ever preached Acts chapter 2 by Peter, when he says, what? they said, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. So close together, so intertwined that some believers have come to the wrong conclusion that in order to be saved, you have to both believe and be baptized, which we don't teach. But they're so intertwined that I could see where well-intentioned believers could come to that conclusion because we're the only culture in history that I'm aware of that has ever made this issue of baptism some kind of decision you weigh. You come to faith in Christ, you're baptized. And it's a picture of the spiritual baptism we all receive into the body of Christ. We are both part of the membership, we have membership in the universal body, and we have membership in the local body. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and I have a slide for that, I believe, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, listen, to the church of God that is in Corinth. There's those two expressions of the, of the church. The church of God, locally in the city of Corinth, this identifiable group of people that Paul could actually write a letter and give it to somebody and say, go to Corinth and find the church of God that's assembled there. You see what I mean? Find the church of God located in that city. Bring this to them. It's the local expression of the body of Christ universal. Christians must recognize their role in both. We are to be serving and loving one another. And we are to keep in mind the fact that anyone who names the name of Christ throughout the world are as well our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to pray for them and love them and care for them as we should. As a matter of fact, to the church in Corinth, he was writing to them in part to prepare a, a, an offering that they needed to prepare an offering that could be brought to the churches in Judea who were at that time in a famine and they were struggling and suffering. And he's trying to show them they're part of the body of Christ. You take up this offering and you bring it to your brothers and sisters in that location, you see. You don't forget about them. 
becoming this isolated little unit of yourself and not worry about your brothers and sisters around the world. We're to show brotherly kindness and affection to them as well. One passage that I think teaches this is 1 Peter 4 verse 9 where Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, oftentimes we talk about this verse here and we're thinking, okay, hospitality means I, I have people into my home for meals and such that, uh, as part of the church. Now, I'm not downing that or diminishing that at all, but I don't think that's what Peter had primarily in his mind. The word hospitality is made of two Greek words. Uh, uh, one is related to the word Philadelphia, phileo, which we know is to show love or brotherly love. Of course, Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love. Brotherly affection. And the Greek word xenos means stranger or foreigner. It's love of strangers. In other words, show hospitality to the one another's. And in Peter's day, what would happen is you might be in a certain place, a particular town, village, city, and brothers and sisters would come through that you don't even know. And in those days, traveling was would create hardships and people needed things and they needed help and you were to welcome them in and do it without grumbling because yes it's probably going to cost you to do it but they're the one and others you let them in you care for them we have an entire industry in our country you can get a degree in this it's called the hospitality industry and in the hospitality industry you're running hotels with all of these uh, xanias is what they were called, guest rooms. Strangers would come and you house them in these rooms. It's the whole concept that no matter where they come from, who they are, they are your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and when you come through, you show them that brotherly affection and care and concern. You provide for them what they need. That's the connection the body of Christ needs to have. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, he says something very similar. He says, let brotherly love continue, Philadelphia. Do not neglect uh, to show hospitality to strangers, Philoxenios is the word. There it is. You care for these people as they come through. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to recognize all believers from all over the world as our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where the universal church mentality has to kick in. But it is the local, geographical, physical church that believers are to live out their body of Christ membership. Now, press pause for a moment. I'm skimming here to see what I want to do. One other thing we've learned, actually we didn't learn any of that, okay? I started off saying, what have we learned? What have we learned now, though, is this, that the church, when we read in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and you see the day of Pentecost, what do we have? We have a new entity being formed, remember? Primary point is that Israel, or the church, is not Israel. And I'm becoming more convinced that the separation of those two entities is very important in a number of ways. That what we have in Acts chapter 2 is something new 
happening. A new entity is being formed. This is what we've talked about. And our brother read this earlier in his presentation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, that is Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross or by killing the hostility. Remember last week we talked about the church itself, this ecclesia, this new entity, new humanity, being a mystery. That is, it was hidden in the Old Testament, but made known now in the New. Now, the fact that Gentiles would be coming to faith and saved and God was going to bless Gentiles, that's no mystery. That goes back all the way into the book of Genesis that God had a plan to do that. But the fact that he was going to make this new entity in place of the two, bringing Jew and Gentile together in peace, in Christ, together in this one new entity, that was a mystery. And what it means and how we apply this is this. When a person is saved, when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, their new primary identity, which supersedes all their other identities, is that they're in the body of Christ. Meaning, if an Israelite, a Jewish person, comes to faith in Christ, his Jewishness or his descendancy from Abraham takes a back seat to his identity in Jesus Christ and the member of the body of Christ. Our culture places much on how we want to identify ourselves. Everybody wants to identify themselves in some group. The big one now, of course, is by your sexual orientation or the particular gender you would like to go by. You even get to create your own pronouns now. This is my primary identity, they say, is my sexual orientation. Others, it could be the color of their skin. Others, it could be their descendancy from some country or nation or whatever it is. Those types of things may be a part of who a person is, But when they come to faith in Christ, their primary identity is as a member of the body of Christ. Now, think about this for a second, Christian. If we, as members of the local body of Christ, are to be living out our membership in the body of Christ as a whole, as members of a local, committed to each other in a local community, a local church, if being a member of the body of Christ is our primary identity. What should that say about our involvement in the local body? Should you have the thought in your mind that church is something you do on Sunday morning? Or should it be that you're thinking in your mind, the church is who I am. Because it is our primary identity, then our church 
Ness and our connection to the body of Christ must become our priority, you see? This takes the priority over everything else of who we are and what we do. And I would argue that that should be reflected in the way your week revolves. Your week should begin each week on Sunday, the first day of the week, by the way, gathered with the people of God in corporate worship. That should not be something in your life then that is up for grabs because this is your primary identity. If you are a doctor, that's part of your identity. And because you're a doctor, you'll show up to your practice every week. If somebody said to you, why do you go into your, your office? Well, I'm a doctor. I'm going to go practice my doctoring here. Practice medicine. But on Sundays, when the ecclesia is gathering, and you're like, where are you going today? Uh, we're going to go to IHOP and have pancakes and then watch football. Because after all, I'm saved by grace and it's legalistic to tell people they should come to church every week. See, the problem is in the Christian community is they don't know who they are. They have no idea who they are. They're confused. Nobody's telling them who they are and who they're supposed to be. That's why I'm telling you who you are and who we're supposed to be, right? We're members of the body of Christ and that should be expressed, friends, in the way we are a part of the local assembly. I think it is that significant. And because being a member of the body of Christ is our primary identity now. We're in Christ. We are Christians. We're disciples of Christ. We're children of God, however we want to call it. Because of that, the way we view the world is different. Political issues must always now be filtered through our primary identity. Meaning this, and I mentioned them earlier in our prayer, but Iran as a nation okay, is the enemy of the United States. That's, an, that's just a fact, right? They're our enemy. However, and this is how the Christian has to think, 1.2% of their population, according to joshuaproject.net, are evangelical Christians who believe in Jesus like you and me. So the way we've got to be careful, don't we? That's going to take some thought in these things. We need to see that just because the nation itself is our enemy, and they are, if you're thinking of yourself as an American, you should view Iran as an enemy, okay? However, you must understand that within Iran you have 
brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ with whom you would love, show brotherly kindness, worship with if you could, you see. Help if you could. So important to see that. We must always keep that in mind when we're looking at the geopolitical issues of our day and age. Our primary allegiance, if you will, is to Jesus, even above our allegiance to the United States of America. This is also why it's important to understand a true distinction between the church and the state or the government. To understand that the state or the government has its role before God. According to Romans 13, they're given a sword. And with that sword, they are to execute judgment on evildoers. Which means our government and our military and anyone serving in it, even if they're believers and they're sent to these places to fight with these people, they should do so knowing that this is God's design. They're not doing anything wrong. And at the same time understanding that within that place and within those borders are brothers and sisters in Christ. You know where this became very practical and really challenging for some? Started with the Revolutionary War. Believe it or not, there were born again, believing people in England and in the colonies. I remember hearing a an account of a British soldier who was hung and they, they were searching his body and within, in his pants they found a, a, a folded up note with a poem on it. Beautiful poem. I didn't, I didn't find it, couldn't find it. I didn't uh, take enough time to look for it, but a beautiful poem expressing Jesus Christ as his Savior and his love for the Lord. Got real complicated in times like the Civil War. When before the Civil War, you had had believers in the South worshiping and believers in the North worshiping and maybe much in common and loving the Lord together, and now all of a sudden they're at odds. It takes thought to work through these things. And we must always remember that our responsibility as the church now, and remember there's that priority, right? As the church and members of body Christ is to bring the gospel to all the nations even if they are in the lands of our enemies. Even if, as an American, and you going there puts you in grave danger. We must keep in perspective, keep in mind the fact that we are the body of Christ, we have our commission, we have our priorities, and they supersede everything else. They don't eliminate all of the other things that make us who we are. They don't completely eliminate even our love for our own country. But they supersede those things. Now one more thing I'll bring out in this distinction between Israel and the church and how important this is to see. One of the major problems of the people of the Old Covenant era, that is Israel, is that they brought dishonor upon God through their rebellion and sin. They, now think of them as the people of God in the Old Covenant, representing God 
in this world, as that nation, they were to be a people who were holy to the Lord and represent Him well because everybody around them knew they belonged to this Yahweh, this the Lord. And what we see and what you read throughout the Old Testament is that they failed in doing this. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, this is one of the Ten Commandments, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The word take can be take up, lift, or carry. In other words, yes, it can be referenced to us using the Lord's name as a cuss word. That's true. We do not do that. But it's also in reference to the fact that you are taking on yourself God's name. In other words, Israel, you are the people out of all the nations of this earth who represent my name. You take it up. Don't do so in a vain, empty, meaningless way. I'm not going to hold the one guiltless who does this. You represent me in this world. And they failed at this. In Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But they failed to honor His name and brought dishonor on His name. And Ezekiel 36, verses 16 to 21 says this, A word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. You see what I mean? So there's a bunch of people that were just running around using the Lord's name as a cuss word. These were people whose by their very life was bringing dishonor on the name of God. And Christian, now we are the identifiable people of God in this age. We bear the name of the Lord. Every time somebody drives by Calvary Bible Church, they have a pretty good understanding that the people in that congregation claim to be the people of Jesus Christ. That comes with tremendous responsibility. As soon as we identify ourselves as a congregation, as soon as we identify ourselves as a church and a Bible church nonetheless, now all of a sudden we've We've dared to take up the name of the Lord, to carry it before us. When somebody is saved and then they are baptized, Jesus said, baptize them in what? The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When you're baptized, you're taking on yourself the name of God. It's a sacred responsibility, right? Now, I had you turn to 1 Peter 2. We're going to close with this, but look at 1 Peter 2. Look at how Peter applies this. In verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, As you come to Him, that is Jesus, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Catch that? He's not talking to Israel here, but he's using Old Testament language that was applied to Israel, but he's talking to the church and how they must see themselves. For it stands in Scripture, he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. He's talking primarily there. Those prophecies are directed right to the nation of Israel and the unbelief of the people. Now notice this in verse 9, but you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of the missions that God had given to Israel, be a light to the nations. But they weren't. They failed at that mission. But you now, church, are the ones who he has chosen out to proclaim uh, his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So listen to this. Beloved, I urge you then as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Immediately the application, you're the people of God, you represent him now. And immediately the application from Peter goes, now you represent him in holiness. Bring glory through your deeds, and as the world hates you, and they will, for righteousness' sake, it's glorifying God, even as it's happening. Friends, we are to be a people who are holy to the Lord our God because we bear His name. How often it is easy, for me anyway, to walk in the world, and to go do things on a daily basis and forget that I bear the name of the Lord. And maybe things could happen that I don't respond in a way that would bring glory to God. You have that trouble sometimes or am I the only one? I, I think we all probably struggle with that from time to time. We need to remember who we are. We need to keep our identity before us at all times, remembering the priority of our life, remembering our position in this world as the people of God, His chosen race and royal priesthood, really interceding between Him and humanity. We need to remember our priority of bringing the gospel and praying for our brothers and sisters around the world to be good representatives by His grace, empowered by His Spirit, in the world in which we live. We'll pick up where we left off next week. Let's pray. Father,
Thank you so much for this privilege, as Peter called it, the honor of being your people. Every true believer here knows it was not because of our goodness that this has come to us, but because of your graciousness to us. So we praise you for it. We ask now as we turn to the Lord's Supper and thinking about Jesus and his sacrifice at Calvary for our sins, making our relationship with you one of peace, our relationship with one another one of peace, we pray that it would impact us and nourish our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.